Hi, I'm David Morell, and I'm the author of the original novel, First Blood, from which this film was adapted. I'm going to be talking about uh, some differences between the novel and the film, just to give you a sense of why the film turned out the way it did, and tell you some other interesting stories. Later on, we're going to talk about Mario Casar and Andrew Vanya, the names you just saw, very important to this picture. So we start with Jerry Goldsmith's wonderful music. It's a kind of a mournful, martial trumpet, which he uses in all kinds of interesting ways as the picture developed. When I first saw this movie, it was on such unusual circumstances that people talk about what glamour it might be to have a film adapted. Well, uh, Orion, which was the distributor of this film, arranged for us, my wife and I, and two children to see this where I was then living in Iowa City. I was a professor of American literature there at the time. And we had planned to have a big party with uh, all our friends come and popcorn and, you know, the whole thing. And Orion decided that they didn't want to uh, lose those tickets. <laughs> so they insisted that we watch the film at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday in a totally empty big theater. We walked in and there was the manager greeting us, wondering what this was all about. And we came in and sat down totally bewildered. And here came Sylvester Stallone, all 20 feet tall of him walking toward us. And I was totally blown away. I couldn't figure out what on earth I was seeing. And in a moment, my credit's coming up here. And of course, you, you don't know what to make of that. And I was just stunned. We walked out of the movie about four o'clock on this bright, sunny afternoon. And my wife looked at me and the kids looked at each other. And we didn't know what the heck had happened to us. There's, there's my credits, forgive me for pausing. And I went home in a daze and a friend called me and said, well, what do you think? You know, what did you, what did you experience? And I said, I don't know. It was so bizarre not seeing it with an audience. And he said, well, was it any good? And I said, you know, I cannot tell without the audience. And he said, okay, let me put it another way. You'd know if it was bad. And I said, oh yeah, I'd know that. And believe me, this is not a bad picture. And three days later it opened and I went to see it with an audience and they just went berserk watching it. I'll point out a couple of scenes where that happened. And I knew we had a tremendous hit. Anyhow, this scene, it was filmed, this whole picture was filmed in British Columbia uh, in an area called the Golden Ears National Park. It's about a hundred miles northeast of uh, Vancouver. Uh, very, very beautiful scenery. And unfortunately, None of this is in the novel. This novel kicked around Hollywood. I wrote it in, it was published in 1972. It was a very controversial movie or novel at the time because it upped the ante on the amount of action that you could put in a book. And at the same time, it was about uh, Vietnam coming home to the United States. My intent in writing it, it started back in 1968 when I was a graduate student at Penn State. And I was watching TV one night when I was struck on the news by a, two reports that followed back to back, one of which was about a Vietnam firefight with soldiers screaming and shooting and bullets kicking up dust. And the other was about a riot going on in American cities. Uh, uh, the, that summer and the, particularly the year after, there were many, many riots, and a lot of them had to do with uh, off, offshoots of anger about the Vietnam War. And I got to thinking, what if we had a novel in which the Vietnam War came home to the United States and we sort of had a taste of what it would be like in our backyard? Basically, the intent was to write an anti-war novel about how 
I was not in favor of the Vietnam War, and it was about how the establishment abused young men and took them over and turned them into killing machines and then brought them back and never detrained them. In that respect, I suppose I can answer a question I often get, which is the, who was my model for Rambo? And it would have to be Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War II, who is a kind of Rambo positioned uh, young man from Texas who was trained to be a killer and never detrained. And Audie Murphy had many, many problems in later life because of it. This is, uh, notice that sign, Welcome to Hope. It seems too good to be true, but this place in uh, near the Gould Near National Park is in fact called Hope. Let me just interrupt my story once uh, because of Brian Dennehy here. He has a very difficult problem in this picture because he really has, unlike the novel, no role to play. And he has a very excellent actor who has to rely on all kinds of tricks and what have you in order to become a character that doesn't exist on the page. I'll get into a little bit more about him now that I get back to my story. Um, I thought, what if you had a, a character that came back from the war, a Medal of Honor winner, totally disaffected, thought the war was bogus, and felt as if he'd been abused? Listen to this line. Take a bath this week? <laughs> Taking a bath this week. Anyhow, I thought this man would come back and wander this, this, the byways of the United States, very disaffected, trying to figure out what on earth his life was about. And he, this is where the novel actually begins with Rambo walking into this town and the policeman stopping him and saying, we don't like guys who look like you living in our town. Uh, now, this picture was made 10 years after I wrote the novel in 1982, and a lot had changed in the meantime in this country. Part of the um, rationale for the events that are about to happen in the, in the jail uh, came from uh, some reports that I had read back in the late 60s. To, uh, one in particular, a group of um, young youngsters, young men with beards and long hair. Remember that at that time in the late 60s, there were places in the United States where if you went and you looked hairy and bearded and all the jokes about are you a man or a woman or all that stuff, it would be worth your life. And in the American Southwest, these guys had come through and they had been taken into the police station, stripped, hosed, shaved bald and shaved their faces shaved and taken out, given their clothes back and taken like 15 miles outside of town and told to hit the road and get on to the next the next area is this moment where, you know, why are you hassling me? We don't like guys who look like you coming to our town. Well, in the 10 years since the novel had come out, <laughs> I remember people in the audience turning to each other and saying, well, I don't get it. What's wrong with the way he looks? Because everybody, every male in the audience looked like Rambo. I mean, 10 years, it made such a difference. I, I, I've never failed to laugh at it. What's wrong with the way he looks? And I get paid to keep it that way. So anyhow, I thought we need an antagonist for the picture, for the, for, the, for the story. And I decided that it might be fun to have a character, a police officer whom he comes in conflict with, who would have been a war hero in his own right, only he would have been a war hero in the Korean War. And this man, if you think of Teasel as a being a Republican and Rambo being a Democrat or a disaffected Democrat, uh, the conservative versus the liberal, 
and, and maybe beyond that, almost the radical, you get a sense of the kind of conflict I wanted to build. Uh, beyond that, I wanted the policeman Teasel to be uh, just old enough that it's possible that Rambo could have been his son and that we get into this whole issue of the, the generational conflict. So my intent in doing the story was the 50s versus the 60s and the kind of civil war that was developing in the United States that we were going to see in miniature. Um, the one way of doing this, uh, it was forced upon me, was to make the policeman as full a character and as understandable as Rambo was, so that the novel became uh, structured so that we would have one chapter from Rambo's viewpoint, one chapter is from Teasel's viewpoint, one from Rambo, one from Teasel, to the point where we didn't know who the hero was. And that as the story progressed, we would know who to cheer for. Um, that conflict was so important to me that um, I was a little disappointed when I saw that the policeman's role in this picture was reduced so much. But on the other hand, we only have 95 minutes and sacrifices have to be made. And in a moment here, we're going to see the introduction of a major prop, uh, the knife, uh, generated a lot of controversy. Uh, the knife was designed by Jimmy Lyle, the so-called Arkansas knifesmith. He's a very famous, <laughs> here it is. He says, what do you hunt with this? Name it. Uh, it's based upon uh, an, an aviator's survival knife. The idea was that an aviator, a military aviator, uh, falling, say, crashing somewhere, being shot down, would have basically all the tools needed for survival in the knife. So the knife has a hollow handle, and there's a compass in the head that you can use. That within the hollow handle, you have a fishing line, you have uh, matches, you have you know whatever sorts of things you would need. There's twine wrapped around the handle itself that you can use to fish. The uh, the guards uh, between the blade and the handle, one side has a uh, Phillips screwdriver, the other has a straight screwdriver. Uh, in addition, the serrated edges on the heavy side of the knife uh, are very important. Let's say you were an aviator and you're in a down plane. Look at that thing. Isn't that, it's just an amazing thing. Um, if you're in a downed aircraft that you could literally, and Sly, I'm told, did this once uh, on the set, that you could take a piece of, like, a, you know, a wall of metal, let's imagine the side of the aircraft, and chop into the aircraft and use the serrated side as a, um, as a saw that would allow you to open a, um, uh, you know, a door for yourself. Uh, thinking of resemblances between the novel and the film, look at that scaffolding there for the painter. That is in the novel. It amazed me that, you know, whoever the set designer, that, that, that the novel has them going downstairs and there is this thing where they're, they're busy um, painting the, uh, the walls. I, uh, the set designer must have, I guess, read the novel and looked for little devices to add in. The only thing I miss is later on during the escape in the novel, he uses the scaffolding to pull them down and throw the scaffolding at the uh, people chasing him. And I always thought that was a, a neat little thing that they, they could have done. Uh, the flashback to Vietnam, we have a little sense that something's funny here. Up until now, uh, this guy has been a lonely drifter, and uh, we're wondering about him. I, I, I mentioned at the beginning the scene with the 
the family who have lost their son to Agent Orange is not in the in the book. Uh, the 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 book went when it sold to the films in in seventy two went through three studios, and some sixteen scripts. Uh, talents such as uh, Martin Ritt and Sidney Pollock, and even from the very beginning, Richard Brooks were associated with it. Uh, Steve McQueen at one time was scheduled to be Rambo. Paul Newman had been talked to about it. There were an awful lot of people involved. The problem from a movie-telling point of view was that I had, I was always struck by the, the notion that sometimes war, uh, mo war movies have this they're going to do, say, an anti-war movie, and, and they water it down so much so they're not showing you that war is hell, they're showing you war is heck. And I had written the novel so that we would see believably how a special forces, such a seriously trained ex-soldier, could, in a civilian population, just wreak utter havoc. And I wanted to do it realistically and just give you a sense of how scary even one man like this could be. The result is that the body count in the novel is perhaps 250 people. It's, it's, it's enormous. It is a small war. And when they were trying to adapt the novel to the screen, the problem they had was that it was so strong to see him killing that many people that all um, sympathy was lost, especially in a medium where you can't internalize and get into the guy's head to find out why he's doing it. The only way to handle the problem would be to emphasize the picture from, say, the policeman's point of view and do something along the lines of a movie that I was very influenced by, Only Are the Brave, the Kirk Douglas film, where he's on the run from the law in um, the Albuquerque Mountains in New Mexico. And there, you know, the, the policeman has such a, a, a strong role. And um, they, in various drafts, didn't want to do that. And the character kept being modified and modified. And the first problem was, how do we gain initial sympathy for the guy instead of just having him walk into town and be accosted by the policeman? So that, that scene was invented. I don't know if it was Sylvester or if Michael Kozel or William Sackheim, the, the other writers involved with this particular draft, um, whether uh, who, who invented the notion. but. Um, the idea was to have this this lonely drifter, very sympathetic. Boy, that's a tough moment, isn't it? Uh, wow. Um, to have this very sympathetic man show up and he finds out that the last guy in his unit is dead and Angel or Orange killed him and the war is still going on in that sense. Awfully good shape, isn't he? Boy, he looks good. And uh, so that when he leaves, we're, uh, the, the family at the beginning, we're very sympathetic toward him. And as soon as the policeman shows up, we see all that rotten policeman. And the sympathy is at work and the conflict is established. Um, we'll talk about the body count in this picture a little bit later on. Um, I have to say that I'm a little troubled by the language in this film. Uh, it's, it, it, this picture started a lot of different uh, trends, and one of which was um, in action films to increase the level of um, gross dialogue. And I'm, I'm not sure if we need it. I suppose, you know, there's a certain level of roughness that we have to have. But, you know, later on it got to the point where in some of the Lethal Weapon movies, I mean, the language was way off the chart. Um, we're getting into, what, 15 minutes, 16 minutes into this picture, and the action has started. And the action will continue now. This picture runs 95 minutes. 55 minutes of this picture uh, consists of action. And it's one of the ways I was talking about breaking rules. It's one of the ways in which um, 
uh, adding new things. And, and uh, for on a kind of negative side, um, perhaps the language on the plus side, if you're an action aficionado, it used to be before First Blood, another very strong moment, and we realize he's got some kind of strange past, and here we go into the action. Tom Noble's staccato cutting, Jerry's wonderful music, just making us nervous as can be. I remember being in movie theaters, as I saw this a couple of times in the theater, people were fidgeting, they were going, they were, they were jumping, jittering. It was like they were feeling what was happening on the screen because this is one of the great screen fights. If you know, if you were into the top 10, you'd say have Frank Sinatra's fight with uh, Henry Silva and the Manchurian Candidate and a couple of others. And then this definitely would have to be in the top 10. It's extraordinary what happens. And Jerry's building this music. There's one of my favorite moments is coming up where we have him escaping and as he bursts out of the police station, Jerry Goldsmith brings in the same music we heard at the very beginning, but now in the, in the very recognizable Rambo heroic theme. And here it comes. I'm just gonna pause while you listen to this. People were cheering. It's hard to imagine these days audiences are so lethargic uh, and not involved. People were cheering at this moment, and I think the music helps a lot. Now, all of a sudden, Jerry stops the music. The first half of the chase has no music at all. He's giving us a little break. He's letting the action speak. And then at a certain point, we, st we start up again. Um, you can see why Steve McQueen wanted to do this. Actually, there is a little music here. There's a certain point where he stops it, where he realizes there's enough that we don't need anymore. Steve really wanted to do this, in part because he's a loner and he's anti-establishment, and in part because of this motorcycle chase. Okay, here, no music at all. Now it's stopped and we're, we're just gonna let the action tell itself. And um, I remember, I don't know uh, Sidney Pollack well at all. I met him very casually one day, but uh, we were talking about how Sidney had worked on the picture for a bit with Steve. And I said, oh, McQueen would be so great. And then it struck me, and, and, and Sidney Pollitt mentioned it later. Yeah, the problem is that Steve, at the time they were considering him, was like 46 years old. And how do you get a young Vietnam veteran coming back from the war to be 46 years old? So it had to be abandoned. And, you know, there were a lot of other problems similar to that um, as they were trying to cast. Um, Sylvester Stallone at this time in his career in 1982 had had a hit only in the Rocky films. And that is in spite of what I think are a couple of really good other films. I, I think Fist is very interesting and I'm very impressed. I liked very much a picture called Victory that was a soccer movie that he made with uh, John Huston directing. But the truth was that he didn't have a track record and when Sylvester was hired for this picture, there were many in the industry who felt that this was going to be uh, another uh, failed project for him. And in fact, the people associated with it weren't quite sure where, uh, what they had. Uh, Sylvester, in, in some early, early interviews about the picture, said that he thought that unfortunately this might be the most expensive home movie ever made. Uh, well, obviously, it, it turned out quite different. and. 
One of the reasons goes back to what I started to say earlier about the level of action in this piece. It used to be, uh, with the exception of the James Bond films, that an, uh, an action picture would be considered successful if in its three acts it had three major action sequences. And these were usually, you know, very carefully structured. I mean, if you think about a classic picture like Bullet, um, and it feels like an action movie, but uh, you have basically a lot of procedural stuff at the beginning. There's a killing, a man is killed by a shotgun. We go a long time, and we have a little bit of business in the, in the um, hospital where Steve is chasing some guy. Then we have the big action, the famous car chase, and then we have the shootout at the airport, and that's the picture. Um, this is one of the very first pictures in which th they tried to run the action non-stop so that after the first 15, 16 minutes, bang, we're into it. And except for when Richard Crenna is introduced, this picture does not stop. And it reinvented afterward. Uh, all action movies had to pay attention to this. This was the start of the modern action movie. And so, you know, if you go to a new Lethal Weapon or what have you, um, this, is, uh, this is the granddaddy of them. Um, a lot of other things that are uh, going on in this picture. Um, when Rambo in the novel escapes and gets on the motorcycle, he is stark naked. Uh, I wanted to show, I might have, it, would, it would have been, I guess, very hard to film and, and perhaps would have gotten them the wrong rating, but I, I thought it would be so interesting if the guy escapes naked, he gets on this motorcycle, and bang, within 24 hours, he's clothed and fully armed using whatever he can find in the mountains to handle it. Um, and in one of the ways he did it was by pretending he was in Vietnam and using, and though in Vietnam they would use uh, indigenous tribesmen in order to help themselves, to help him, you know, they would supply him and what have you. And in the novel, Rambo heads in, in the mountains, and it's the, 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 the novel is set in Kentucky. I wanted it to have certain. Um, kind of north-south uh, conflicts as well. And so he heads into the mountains and searches out moonshiners, uh, which he treats as the indigenous tribesmen, and he gets things from them. But here we've cut all that. He's up there, beyond the draw. Let's get Orville on the radio. Tell him to get out here with his damn dogs right away. And now we're back to um, uh, Brian trying to do something with his role in this utterly utterly uh, gorgeous uh, country. We're going to have the helicopter come in in a minute, and uh, that leads into a whole other issue uh, to do with the uh, level of violence in this picture. Um, you have an um, interesting look, I think, and uh, he becomes very iconic as he, as he puts on this uh, hat band, this uh, sweat band, and much uh, imitated and, and in some ways parodied, but this is a, a moment in film history where something interesting is about to happen. Anyhow, in, in, the, in the book, he is chased by the posse and they get the helicopter and they go after him, but uh, Rambo has killed, it wasn't just a fight, he killed all the men in that basement so that now we have a manhunt uh, that is for a deadly, uh, serious, purposes, and uh, they're, sh they're shooting at him, uh, uh, with uh, trying to kill him just as he's trying to kill them back, and 
we get into this moment where uh, our hero is racing and reaches the side of the uh, cliff and is beginning to climb down. And um, I remember Andy Vina, uh, one of the producers whom I want to talk about now, telling me that uh, they wanted to be close to the novel in, in certain respects and that shooting this sequence they'd been tempted to do it a different way and finally they decided no let's just go ahead and do it very hard to do what we're about to see uh, i mentioned mario Kosser and andrew Vanya. Uh this picture uh orion was the distributor in the united states for this film and the uh actual company that made it was called carolco and Andrew Vanya and Mario Kossar were the brains behind it. They had been kicking around independently in the movie business for a while. I believe, um, in fact, Andy had been in the Orient uh, doing some of this, and they decided to match their forces and make a film. They had heard about First Blood, uh, which had become a legend as a property because it had passed from uh, one studio, it had passed from Columbia, it had gone to Warner Brothers, it had gone to another studio, it had gone through all these wonderful uh, directors and actors that I talked about. Uh, marvelous, uh, I can't resist commenting on, on how breathtaking the scenery is and how difficult the following stunts are to do. Anyhow, they had heard about this project that had been in development for so long. They went to Warner Brothers, they found it in the vault, the, the materials, the various scripts, they read it and they said, you know, we could do this. Why don't we hire Sylvester Stallone? And as I said at that time, Sly was not considered bankable, but let, they said, let's do Stallone. Uh, let's make this a kind of a Rocky movie. Let's make him the underdog we cheer for, the same as, uh, as Rocky. And, and uh, Sylvester got very involved with that, uh, liked the idea a lot, and rewrote the Sackheim Coastal script in order to introduce this um, this underdog element, which I think in terms of the movie is what made the difference and, and turned it into a hit. Um, Mario and Andy made this with their own money. Uh, they couldn't get anybody to believe in the thing. And even for a time when they showed a small production reel to, to studios in the United States, they could not get a studio to think that this picture could make any money. And so what they did is they put together the 55 minutes of action. They assembled the movie so there was only this sort of thing that we're looking at now. Very, very gripping. And they showed it at one of the film... Uh, they, they, periodically in the, in the uh, movie business, uh, people get to look at that. It, if you're in a, this is film. This picture was filmed in uh, anamorphic Panavision, which is a two-three-five aspect ratio, very, very wide. And I think, in particular, uh, what you're seeing here with the framing of this, uh, an extraordinary uh, filmic moment. Ted Kochev, I think, has never really been given credit for what is an extraordinarily visually uh, satisfying experience. What are you doing? We're just supposed to spot him. So anyhow, the, they uh, showed this at, a, at a, a meeting in which various distributors get together on an international basis to see what movies they're going to promote. And 
and they showed the 55-minute action clip. And Richard Crenna was there at the time, and he told me about it. He said when Andy and Mario walked in with the piece, they couldn't get arrested. Nobody wanted to talk to them. And after the 55-minute clip was, was shown, it was like being at the New York Stock Exchange. People jumped up and down and raced to be the first people internationally in various countries to sign up in order to be able to show this thing. And, and the movie business at that point changed again because it used to be that uh, you went to a studio, you got financing, and you made a picture. And what Andy and Mario, uh, look at this, here's that stunt I was telling you from the novel, just breathtaking, comes down and down and down. Excellent stunt man. Now he's going to hit the tree and bang, bang. And this is all from the novel. And in, in the novel, he breaks a rib and he has to do first aid on himself. And whoa. And that's when we see, of course, uh, Rambo, as it here, is about to pull out the knife and suture himself up. And my audiences just went crazy when they saw that as well. Very gripping moment. Uh, anyhow, it was like the New York Stock Exchange, as I said. And, and the, what Andy and Mario decided to do from then on is they would go to the international distributors. They would say, listen, we want to make a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger or we want to make Rambo 2. And they would give them up front the money, that is the foreign distributors, give Eddie and Mario the money up front to make the movie uh, in exchange for favorable terms, I assume. Look at how well these, these uh, dummy bullets, the explosive charges in the side of the tree are, are placed in perfect coordination when the man's shooting. Obviously, those aren't real bullets he's shooting, but they're little squibs in the side of the tree, which, which uh, detonate when he, uh, when he fires as a man off camera with a... Let me just pause here a moment. This is an odd moment. Rambo is being, he's been attacked. Now he throws the rock. He hits the plexiglass and the guy falls. And this is the only death we see on screen. This picture has this reputation for being so violent. Uh, and it, and it, it has the feeling of violence. But I'm going to go through the body count with you as we proceed. And this is the only person we see actually killed on screen. Uh, it, most of the damage in this picture is to uh, property. Um, so um, independent producers began saying, hey, we don't need the studios. We can go to these other people, get the money from overseas from the distributors, make the picture, and control the product. And a whole new generation of um, people making movies uh, came into existence in the 80s. I won't say directly as a result of, of Carol Cole because there were some other independent people sort of fooling around with this idea, but definitely Carol Cole made it work in the biggest way. And, and what with their, uh, with Andy and Mario and their experiment here with how much action you could have in a picture and the way you market a picture and also the length of this picture. This picture is 95 minutes long, more or less, give a little. Now, these days you're used to going, you know, when you go to see Titanic, you see in three hours and, you know, the horse whisperer, or I don't know, what's that run, 240, something like that. Think about it from the point of view of a, of a producer and a distributor talking to somebody who shows a theater, shows a movie in a theater. It, if you can get a picture that, say, runs 95 minutes, that gives you enough time to get people into the theater. You watch the 95 minutes, and in the remaining amount of time, you can get people out of the theater and a new lot into the theater in time to show it all within a two-hour cycle which means that in the course of a day of showing this movie, you can get an extra showing, which, believe me, makes a lot of money, uh, makes a difference in, in, in the box office gross. And uh, for a long time, 
um, there were a few other people that were following this rule as well, but Andy and Mario really liked the idea that you would have a picture this length. And for a long time, that's, that was sort of the mandatory length for these things. Um, and then, I don't know, you know, things change and all of a sudden we're getting longer movies. And I have to tell you that in a number of cases, I'm not sure the extra length um, benefits much. I sometimes think that we're losing a little in the... Um, in the in the in the pacing and in, and in the power. Oh, now he's now he's got himself shot. I didn't do anything. He's the underdog, and he really didn't. What he was being picked on. He threw a rock. Big deal. You can see that we're working hard all the way through here to build um, to build sympathy for this guy. Whereas, as I said in the novel, um, the the there is far more action and far more uh, the, the the bodyguard is is far huger we got to stop here a moment because if you thought you were looking at David Caruso, you were in fact looking at David Caruso. This is one of his very early uh, pre-television um, success uh, films. And I, th I think he does a really, there he is on the right, there's David with the, with the, with the bloody lip. Uh, still, even, even at a very young age, he has a tremendous, I knew there was something about him, a tremendous, um, uh, uh, charisma. Um, I mentioned earlier that I had been influenced a little bit by uh, Lonely Are the Brave. There's another pick. Basically, this is a Western. I always thought of this as being a Western. And, you know, when he breaks from jail, the motorcycle was like a horse, really. And he's riding out of town and the sheriff's chasing him. Uh, when I was a kid, I was very influenced by a picture with Glenn Ford called The Sheep Man. Glenn Ford wants to have his sheep in, a, in an area where the cattle people are, and they just hate him for being a sheep man. They don't get along, and the sheep are supposed to be ruining the land, etc. So, so they keep running Glenn Ford out of town, and he keeps coming back in. By God, he won't be pushed. And and I mean, there's obviously not a parallel uh, that's direct, but I, I, I when Rambo was pushed back and forth as he comes into town, I was thinking of that a lot. And, and and basically, you know, we're up in the mountains, we're away from civilization, and, and this could, this sort of thing, with very little effort, could, could have been translated into a Western. And then at the very end, uh, here he is setting his booby traps, uh, getting another view of that knife. At the very end, um, when we have uh, the fight in town, I, I was uh, uh, thinking about another kind of, uh, another movie, another Western called High Noon and the kind of uh, balletic, choreographed uh, gunfight that runs through the streets of the town. We're now in Act Two. Some of you may know about movies and the way they're structured in three acts. First act is Rambo comes to town. He breaks loose, and he's up in the hills, and he's on his own. And now we're in Act Two, where they're coming after him. And you can feel the style change. Where I mean, look at how moody. It's almost gothic. Um, they made this picture, as I said, in the Golden Ears National Park outside, Man, uh, outside uh, Vancouver in British Columbia. And if you look closely here, you're going to start seeing snow on the ground. And you might wonder where it came from, because in the early sequence there wasn't any. Well, one of the reasons they didn't film this in, say, Kentucky, where I set the piece, and there are mountains in Kentucky that are very, very vivid, nice gothic touch here, um, was that they... Um, they wanted, uh, they were afraid that even Kentucky in the wintertime when this was scheduled to be shot, that uh, they might get bad weather, whereas um, 
British Columbia is known for its moderate winter weather. So they went to, um, they chose British Columbia, and there were some other reasons to do with taxes and advantages and what have you. Uh, they ch uh, and the mountains are bigger, of course, but they chose it in part because of the the weather. So they get up there and they had the worst winter weather that Vancouver and British Columbia had had in years. And uh, they had to shut down because of blizzards. And then what are we going to do? Because the shots don't match the pieces that we've just seen. There aren't, it's a little rain and what have you, but nice and gloomy, but no drifts and what have you. And for this sequence, they had to bring in um, uh, a little, a little flamethrowers, uh, butane, little butane uh, uh, torches to melt the ice or melt the snow, and also um, uh, kind of uh, lawn sucking devices—the kind of thing you use to get rid of, uh, rid of leaves and what have you, sucking up the snow to get rid of it. And they can't get quite rid of it all, but um, they got rid of enough of it so they could match their shots. Uh, Andy and Mario, I remember being in their office one day, and they said that they had decided to call this sequence, and there is a similar one in Rambo 2 and Rambo 3. They called it their maiming sequence, which there was always going to be a moment in the Rambo movies where the, the, the enemy is after Rambo, and uh, he uh, it blends with the environment. You know, he's in a hole, he's up a tree, he's in the mud, that famous shot in Rambo 2 where he emerges from the mud and where he would one by one in cleverly diabolical methods uh, get rid of um, the people who are after him. And this is a really good example of it. And again, I, uh, the set designer obviously needs uh, a lot of uh, praise here, the, and, the, and the cinematographer, the look of this, just look at this thing, how good looking it is, and that wide effect is so wonderful. And and, and Ted's moodiness, the, the Ted Kochess, the way he has, he has put this whole sequence together again if if the fight in the jail is one of the great screen fights this whole extended stalking sequence has to be one of the great controlled action sequences you can feel the nervousness building uh, awfully awfully well directed and of course in a moment we're going to have uh, Sylvester leap out and give one of the signature lines in the film you want a war I'll give you a war You'll notice that Sly doesn't talk much in this film, and that has, uh, nor does he in the second and the third one, and that has been commented on in various ways. Um, Sylvester Stallone, in real life, is one of the most talkative people, uh, and not in a self-centered way, uh, in, in, a, in a delightful way, one of the most talkative people I've ever met. He is one of the most humorous people I've ever met, and one of the most self-effacing people. I mean, when I say ever met, I'm talking about a superstar, you know, someone who has tremendous power and who um, uh, could, in, in, in the way he relates to you, perhaps be standoffish, but who is very, very engaging. Um, I mean, he does like to talk and, and he talks well. Um, the idea here was twofold for him not speaking. Um, one was that as a Vietnam vet suffering from delayed stress and all these pressures building up in him, that he wouldn't perhaps be the... There we go, isn't that... Wow, that's just so good the way that's done. Uh, very frightening. And poor David's really getting, <laughs> getting whopped in this, isn't he? Um, that the man would be under such psychological stress that he wouldn't really have a lot to say. 
and in fact, there is one draft of the script in which Rambo has no dialogue at all uh, until the very end when he explodes uh, in this great speech near the end about the man with the shoebox, the friend with the shoebox that the, uh, the, who was killed by the bomb in the shoebox in uh, Vietnam. Um, the other reason there isn't a whole lot of dialogue in this film has to do with international distribution. Again, Andy and Mario weren't just thinking about the United States market. They were thinking about the fact that this film had to be translated into Chinese and Japanese and Spanish and Greek and what have you, and that uh, language changes in translation and nuances do, do, do. and certainly, uh, although this is not a very, there's not a lot of humor in this picture, but if you're dubbing, uh, uh, there we go, Rambo jumps out in front, he gets shot at, he gets out of the way and they hit one of their own men, and this, this keeps building and building. Uh, but if, if you, like for a humorous picture, it, uh, American comedies, another very, very strong moment. But again, you know, they're, 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 they're hedging their bets here. Nobody has died yet in this maiming sequence. Um, humor doesn't translate a lot of other things, don't translate well overseas. So uh, they thought if we lowered the amount of dialogue that was at work here, not just for Ramble, but for everybody, and keep it at a you know, a fairly visceral level of dialogue, that it would be easier to dub uh, into other languages. It just got rid of a whole lot of problems. Now, there's a plus and a minus on, on that, of course. On the one, it's good business, and yes, it's effective here. But after a while, if you start minimizing dialogue in pictures, you wind up getting a kind of a idiot's delight. And one of the things I do regret uh, in contemporary movies, as opposed to, say, movies of the... 30s and the 40s uh, is that we don't have enough dialogue. You know, they say, well, make us see it. You don't need to talk about it. But I think there are some things. Here we go. Here's the big line. You want a war? I could have killed them all. It's a very effective moment. It's a turning point. I'll just pause a moment. Don't push it. Don't push it. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Yeah. Very, very scary stuff. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And we have Brian, who doesn't, look how well he does that. You really believe that he has been through this ordeal, that he just didn't walk out of, out of his trailer and wind up on the set. We're about to introduce the next important character. Um, but I was just saying about dialogue, I think that there are some aspects of the human experience that can only be communicated well by dialogue on the page, or pardon me, on, on the screen, and that we really should have a return to, to that, uh, to some degree, to that way of making films. Um, Kirk Douglas originally played the Richard Crenna character. He was costumed for it. Um, there were stills taken of him, there were ads in Variety which showed him in a drawing form as Colonel Troutman. Um, he showed up for a shooting uh, up here in British Columbia and for reasons that uh, I don't know anything about, I suppose, you know, the ever popular creative disagreement, um, creative differences, he decided that uh, the script was not quite the character was not quite where he wanted it to be 
and um, bowed out of the project. Uh, this left them uh, in a quandary because uh, they were up there ready to shoot and they didn't have an actor. Well, Lynn Stallmaster was the casting director of, of this uh, small world department. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I have a, I'm a tennis buff, and uh, my tennis uh, place is like two blocks away from where I live, and I was down there one day playing tennis, and a lot of people show up from to Santa Fe from the movie business, and who do I find playing tennis but Lynn Stallmaster? I'd never met him before, but I was introduced to him. And so at last year's uh, Christmas party at the club, he and I sat down in a corner and we talked about his experiences uh, casting this. And he said, you know, we got this call from the company saying that Kirk has decided he doesn't want to do the project. What are we going to do? And he had this great brainstorm. He's thinking a little bit, and he says, I'm going to phone Richard. I think Richard would be really great for this. So I phoned Richard Crenna, and uh, Richard, um, I guess, decided over the weekend, it's my understanding, like within a very few days, he was in costume and ready to rock and roll, and he's about to make an appearance. It's very risky from a storytelling point of view. I had the problem in the novel doing this. Um, how do you introduce a character this late in the story and not make him look like an attachment instead of somebody integral to the story? Um, He's, uh, he's, on the one hand, he's such a strong actor, he immediately takes over. And on the other hand, uh, we're looking for something to break the logjam here narratively. And there he is. Who the hell are you? Who the hell are you? Sam Troutman. Sam Troutman. Colonel Samuel Troutman. Yes, uh, just so commanding. Richard, by the way, is one of the nicest uh, actors. Actually, I won't even put it that way. One of the nicest people you will ever meet. This guy has been in, in the movie business for years and years and years. He goes all the way back to being a child actor. He was with our Miss Brooks. I mean, what a world of experience. Uh, uh, thinking of a picture like uh, Body Heat, Richard's only in it for 15 minutes. He's the husband that uh, the lovers kill. And I, I told Richard this. I said, you know, I think that one of the reasons Body Heat works so well is because of the strength he brought to his small part in that as the husband. I mean, he had to look absolutely, had to give the feeling of being absolutely a deadly person as a businessman, and yet not to do it in an overblown fashion. You don't seem to want to accept Richard works a lot with his eyes. Look at the stillness of the acting, and yet he's, he's doing so well. And I found him just to be a marvelous, I, I uh, had the opportunity to. Again, we're not friends, but I had a chance on, on the set of Rambo 3 to talk to him at length. And um, I saw him do some very nice things. I was once on a publicity tour with him for Rambo 3, and I remember we came out of an elevator to go talk to some, uh, to some uh, reporters, and there was a father with a, with a oh, I'm going to say a 10, 12-year-old son that was a fan of Richard's for whatever film he'd been in. And, and the father said, you know, would you mind if we had a picture of you and you can't imagine the way Richard treated that that young man it was it was really heartwarming to see the way he related and he and he wasn't putting on airs he was just a just a nice guy when I was writing the book I came under the influence of a of a Jungian uh, uh, myth a book I wrote about myth on a Jungian level a very familiar name uh, 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 to some of you, um, uh, he, he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, uh, later on, um, uh, George Lucas 
uh, got uh, very involved uh, using the Hero with a Thousand Faces and some other um, uh, materials of the same sort in order to create the Star Wars trilogy. The idea is that if you approach this from a mythic level, you have the loner, the man who sort of comes out of the wilderness, showing up in this town, having this, it, it, think of it as, the, as a myth of, say, growing up. Uh, think of Rambo as, a, in a certain sense, as a child at the beginning, and, and the trauma occurs which drives him out into the world, which in this case would be up into the mountains, where he discovers some truths about himself, and he's sort of on the mountain. Think of Moses on the mountain, a lot of other um, uh, people who go up on mountains in order to have revelations, and then uh, come back into town for the third act, um, with the knowledge that they have gained in the mountain so that they are now different from the person they were in Act 1. And uh, this structure is known as a separation, initiation, and return structure. Uh, and you can, if you, if you look at most uh, very successful movies that work on a kind of mythic level, you will find that uh, that structure is very often used. And now we're in the cave. And of course, caves are very mythic places too, where you find that you have all kinds of uh, things that you discover, and we have the fire and a very primal moment, the mighty hunter. If you think about it, there's a little bit of Tarzan in the way this is handled. Now, one of the problems that the screenwriters had from the very beginning was what was he going to do up in the mountains? Um, some of them didn't trust the material. There is one script of this, I swear to you, which is, which is almost a comedy and describes Rambo as the Bobby Riggs of guerrilla warfare. Very few people even know Bobby Riggs is anymore. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, has him demonstrate the wily art of the woodsman He's in a cave, all right. He breaks into a commercial cave where he survives by looting the vending machines. And I always thought that this was sort of as low as you could get in the way that you were going to handle this character. Other writers working on the story uh, tried to, you know, what was he going to do in the mountains? And more important, how do you have a sense of the connection between Rambo and the hills and what's going on? down uh, here at command base and one writer uh, and um, I forgive me I, I was never told uh, who it was I always want to give writers credit um, invented the device that Rambo would have taken the radio from the fellow that uh, he killed when the guy fell out of the out of the helicopter and now we have the ability for him to listen to what's going on back at the base and, that, and there's just a connection and it allows, after all, we're supposed to have this mystical connection between Troutman and uh, Rambo. So it allows them at this point to touch base and communicate um, so that we have a sense that, you know, they're of, of their bonding. And here he's reading all the people who died and again, that sense of the litany of death and the loss that the character has gone through. Now, in the, in the novel, Troutman, his name is Samuel Troutman, and he was, the first name was deliberately chosen because he is Sam, he is Uncle Sam. He is the man 
who created Rambo. He is the establishment. He is, if you like, in some ways, the evil father figure. Uh, he is um, what happens when the government manipulates you. Now, remember, I wrote, I started this book in 68 and 69 under the influence of anti-Vietnam feelings and watching those TV uh, news reels, as I mentioned, and also watching anti-war demonstrations on the Penn State campus in 1970. The National Guard had to come in because of demonstrations in which the administration building at Penn State had been taken over. And I was, I was struck, you know, I had students I was teaching. I make myself sound like Methuselah. I was only in grad school at the time. I would have been, what, my early 20s? And um, I remember talking to these uh, returned Vietnam veterans about what it was like over there and the tremendous bitterness they felt about how their lives had been passed over and how they'd sacrificed themselves and nobody in, this, in the United States seemed to care. And all this went into the mix, and I thought that from a certain point of view, the guy that created Rambo could be a very ambiguous figure. And there are moments when you see the way Richard interprets the character, you can see the pride that he feels in having created this guy. But you can also see, sort of working way back, there's a kind of morbid quality. And this man, Troutman, is, he's a killer. And uh, in perhaps in ways that are more disturbing than anything that Rambo went through. And at, uh, every once in a while, Brian Dennehy's character, uh, Teasel, will look at Troutman and sort of get a look like, say, wait a minute, you're somebody else. He, in the sense that you're a kind of person that scares me. I've never met anybody quite like you before. Uh, and, and it takes a good actor with, with, uh, with, where you don't have a whole lot going on on the page, and here again with, with Brian, uh, not a lot going on, so, you know, how do you handle the material? How do you do it in such a way that we really believe it? And, and it's a, really a tribute to all the acting that's going on in this piece. Now you have that, obviously, look of, that's the sympathetic part of him, but later on you see other aspects of him. So now we bring in the National Guard. I, I was at a book signing once. Some guys from the National Guard came in. They were not at all happy with aspects of this film, which and under certain uh, conditions makes the National Guard look kind of buffoonish later on when they whole ramble up in the, in the cave, in the, in, the, in the mine particularly. But otherwise, this is very much uh, very close to what's going on in uh, the novel. Uh, the, the, the antagonists come through and Rambo is in the water, although I had him under, it wasn't rocky, I don't know how you'd film this, he was under a mud slope and the mud slope had fallen down on him and he was strangulating, drowning, but he didn't, he had to hold his breath and keep lying there, nearly suffocating until everybody left so that he could finally come up. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's a, a minor difference, what can you do? Uh, you, how are you going to film that? Uh, and so now we are at another moment. He's got the kid. Is he going to kill him? In the novel, he kills him. Um, and that might seem shocking, but it's only one of many. As I said, I wanted to show that war is hell. 
And this, this takes a different approach to the character. It's a reinterpretation. It's fascinating to me to watch this because these are scenes I wrote and yet they have been altered and, and in such a way that a new theme emerges. Uh, if mine was an anti-war novel which shows how, say, the Troutmans of the world will triumph, this is a story, and remember this came in just in, as the 80s were getting underway, 82, and Ronald Reagan's, you know, the Reagan years are about to go into full bloom. And, and if you like, this is a Reagan, Ronald Reagan kind of movie. It's about healing the wounds of the past and, uh, and teaching pride and patriotism and the underdog, which was the United States. It's hard to remember how in what low accord we, the United States was uh, viewed. Well, still is in some quarters, but the United States early 80s really had a very low self-esteem ratio and, and Rambo became kind of a surrogate for the nation and as, as he was as the underdog as he came uh, to over to, to come to terms with the past and to try to redeem himself uh, so the nation went along with him now here's that scene where the National Guard is sort of made to look like uh, dopes with apologies i had nothing to do with these scenes <laughs> it is kind of funny though <laughs> they uh they're weekend warriors one guy says he's got to get back to the drugstore by monday i thought that was a scream <laughs> yeah that's just so funny and we we kind of need the humor i guess at this point it's been a very intense piece of work so they're going to, you know, blow the joint up, and uh, which they do uh, in the in the movie as, or pardon me, in the novel as well. Uh, let's talk about this 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 uh, mine for a little bit. Um, it, it isn't used uh, quite as psychologically as as um, I would have liked. I had uh, at one point as Rambo goes deep into the mine, he finds a corpse. He finds the bones of, and he can't figure out, it might have been the original guy that was working the mine. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a kind of an eerie gothic moment where you sense, well, you know, Rambo's going to wind up being in, in the same position. And, and what's more, um, uh, Rambo, I mean, it's almost like he feels more at home in that environment than he would anywhere else. So they're going to use a rocket launcher to blow the heck out of the place. And... He, of course, is trapped, and it looks like he's dead. And in a moment, we're going to have some discussion about why did you guys do this? And then in the very nice, uh, one of the great acting moments in the film, Richard Crenna will sort of sense that the story isn't over yet. In a little while, Rambo in the, in the, in the, in the mine is going to come up against a bunch of rats. And uh, it's worth, I think, uh, talking about this a little. In the book, they weren't uh, rats, they were bats, uh, that um, I wanted to put the character through what to me would be the most nightmarish thing I could imagine. And that was, what if you were walking totally blind in this cave, in this mine, and you were slogging through bat guano. 
and he's he's he, in in the book he's got it just bat guano i'm being polite about the term coming up to his knees oh here we got the iwo jima <laughs> this is kind of funny iwo jima kind of take off he says what do you get the hell out of here you know i gotta be back to the <laughs> gotta be back to the drugstore by monday Anyhow, the bat guano is up to his knees, and he's got beetles. Beetle, there's in, in the bat guano in real life, there's beetles, and they're crawling up his arms and getting under his armpits and all of this stuff. And also, you have to remember that the, um, the, the whole bat environment in a cave, a lot of bats have rabies, so that he's not only thinking in the novel psychologically or physically about, my God, I could die here in the dark with all this stuff around me and these beetles and all that. But psychologically, he's thinking about rabies, and he goes berserk in a way. Uh, here we are, the, the light shines in the darkness. There's a moment here where you can see Sylvester get burned. Uh, I'll point that out as we, as we come along. Um, anyhow, the idea was that he would have a kind of mental break uh, among all these bats flying around and what have you, and that he would sort of in a... I mentioned books. Uh, I was talking earlier about uh, The Hero What Thousand Faces, and the author of that book was Joseph Campbell. And another book that I was reading at the time was by Alan Watts called The Way of Zen, because the Zen warrior struck me as being very much what Rambo would be, the, the, the stillness inside a, a, a violent moment. And uh, I thought that the, the bats would lead him out of the cave and that as he burst up into the air that he would en have entered a new psychological state that he would almost be experiencing mystical visions. Well, you can't really communicate that in a, in a movie, so they changed some things around. Plus, there aren't a whole lot of trained bats in the movie business. So what they decided to do... <laughs> is they decided we'll change the bats to rats. <laughs> so they brought in, they're looking around now to get the rats, and where are you going to get the rats? Well, the only rats they could get were these lab rats, which unfortunately were all colored white. So you have this image, and, and, there's a, and, and this is one of the few movies in the world where you'll see Rat Wrangler as a, somebody listed in the credits. Anyhow, they got these rats... And they got out the Clairol hair dye, <laughs> and they're busy coloring these rats so that they could crawl over poor Sylvester when he's down there in the muck and the and the menace. And I, I just that just that really knocked me out the whole idea of them messing around with this. All right, so he's found some kerosene, and uh, he's going to make himself a torch. And there's a moment, I'm, uh, I guess it comes a little later, you can see Sylvester does a lot of his own work in these films. I didn't see him work on this film, but I saw him working in Rambo 3. And I can tell you, I saw the man, a lot of the blood that was on him during some of the stunts he was doing <clears throat> was not makeup. They were his own, it was his own blood. And there's a moment in Rambo 3 where he's uh, galloping with a Molotov cocktail and the flame goes back and... In real life, it, it burned his hand. I could see the festering and what have you uh, after the shot was done. And here, as he goes through, he's going to go down a, a ladder. And uh, there's a moment where you can see the flames getting uh, awfully close to his arm. And uh, it, uh, well, uh, he sustained a lot. He, he, he gets hurt a lot on, on, uh, on these pictures.
Now, somewhere in here, well, you, you can find it because I want to tell a story. I mentioned earlier that if there's a kind of real life model for Rambo, it would have been Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War II, then later starred in a lot of bad cowboy movies. Um, one question apart from, you know, did I ever have a person in mind that I get asked a lot is where the name comes from? Where does Rambo, the name come from? Let's pause a moment. You will see here in the background, uh, in, in widescreen, that there is a um, set of medals on the bureau behind him, behind Teasel, and that is the only indication in the movie of the war experience that he has had. And, of course, we can't tell if it's Korea or Vietnam, but as I mentioned earlier, it's very important in my estimation that these guys both have had military experience, but in two different wars. And in fact, that whole business of the stalking that goes on in part two, when they're up in the mountain, was intended also to be a conflict of generations. Teasel, who had been a hero in the Korean conflict, thought, okay, I'm in great shape. One guy, we can get the posse, we can go after him. Uh, and he's up there in the mountains and he's thinking like he's in Korea on patrol and basically he's uh, handling uh, the situation and here come the famous dyed, dyed rats. Uh, even so, I'm making light of this, but in, in, <laughs> in context, uh, in the theaters, you heard people screaming and, and you, the, the outburst for all this was really, people were really quite shocked that this was, was going on. Uh, and of course, the poor little things, they're not doing anything. He's just, he's just thrashing around. <laughs> but it's nonetheless very effective. Uh, anyhow, I was, I was talking about the, the, uh, the, the business of the two wars and, um, and, and that what a Teasel practicing conventional, uh, here we go. Now uh, he's, he's having a little bit of trouble there with that thing. And, uh, in, in, in parts of this sequence, this is where he uh, burned himself, uh, so that it would be conventional tactics of Korea against the guerrilla warfare tactics of Vietnam. And again, a kind of a generational thing. Um, anyhow, the, the name, uh, and it is uh, sometimes from prosaic moments that um, th these things happen. I mentioned that I was in uh, graduate school. I got a PhD in American literature at uh, Penn State. This is in the late 60s. And I was, as a part of a classroom assignment, reading <clears throat> some poems uh, by the French poet Rimbaud, whose name is sometimes mispronounced as Rambo. And uh, he had been at one time um, a soldier of fortune, a mercenary as well as a poet, and I was sort of thinking about that, and I said, you know, there's something about that name that strikes me, and now one of these moments in a person's lives occurs. Um, I was reading this book and thinking about it. My wife came home from the grocery store, and uh, I came out, and we were chatting, and she said, listen, I just bought this bag of apples, and you've just got to taste these apples. These are great apples. They're grown locally. They're a Pennsylvania kind of thing, and they're just fantastic. And at that time, I wasn't really an apple person, so I'm still thinking about Rimbo and Rambo and 
I'm saying, well, yeah, mm-hmm. And she said, you know, they got the oddest name. And I said, what's that? And she said, they're called a Rambo apple. And I said, what? And she said, a Rambo apple. And I said, spell it. And she said, R-A-M-B-O. And I said, thank you very much. That's all I need. And went back to go to work. And that's an absolutely true story. Um, Brian Ennehy's character's name, Wilfred Teasel, has a, a different... Uh, I decided I'd go the fruit and nuts route, and instead, so we have an apple for one character, so why not use an herb? Teasel is an herb, not a very well-known one, but it has a kind of a harsh edge to it, and, uh, as does the name, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And, of course, if we break the name down, Will Tease has a kind of a allegorical ring to it, and Troutman, uh, Sam Troutman, I mentioned the first name Sam and Uncle Sam, and Troutman himself, you know, there's a sense of the fisherman, the... the the angler, the man who reels uh, things in, who has a, uh, you know, it's part of that calculating side to him, which uh, some of which we were seeing in the scene uh, that I just spoke over, in which uh, Teasel and Troutman are talking about Vietnam, and, and, um, uh, and uh, Troutman says, you can bet in Vietnam we were very confused, and that this is in the context of the law officer, whether he wants to bring Rambo in alive or whether he wants to kill him. And now in our um, Joseph Campbell moment, here we have coming out of the depths of the human experience, we have the resurrection, so to speak, very mythic moment, and you can see Jerry Goldsmith's music giving us that sense, and you know, here he is emerging out of the forest. Now, if this were a more verbal movie, I'm sure that some of these elements would be explored and we would have a sense of him having come through something and having learned something. Um, but as it is, uh, we have to intuit a lot of that. But I just can't tell you um, how much uh, Campbell's work influenced me. And this would have been, oh, 1969, long before, say, uh, George Lucas was was really making uh, these writings uh, far more well known. And okay, back we've had our tense moment down in the in the cavern. Now we're having him do some daring do. And again, think of this as a western. He just landed on the stagecoach, and he's going to throw the driver out. They'll do a version of this in uh, the second Rambo movie, where he throws a guy out of a helicopter. Uh, he says, "All right, little bit here, but what you got in the back?" M60, and I remember seeing this with an audience, and you could hear a murmur go through the men in the audience who had obviously been in the war and knew what an M60 was. You could see them getting kind of excited because they had a sense of the kind of destruction that was about to occur. In the, in the novel, this is a hunter-hunted story, and in the novel, Using that, you know, I talked a little bit about mysticism earlier. Uh, the characters, Troutman, well, particularly Rambo and Teasel, began to have in their delirium as they were they were fighting each other and trying to come to, you know, the exhaustion that all this has occurred. Um, they began to so identify with each other that they were able in their delirium to almost imagine what the other character was doing. 
um, it, the hunter hunted almost became the same character. And remember, in the novel, these were distinct characters, and Teasel had a much more filled out important role to play. Uh, we knew him, he had, his wife had just left him uh, over the issue of children. He wanted children, she did not, and she left him because the whole thing became so such a big deal. And it's like Rambo could have been the child that Teasel wanted, only obviously a disobedient child. And one of the reasons that uh, the cop hassled Rambo so much is that he was having so many personal problems. He kept saying to himself, all right, you know, I've got so many problems. I could just give up on this kid and, you know, I could go worry about what's going on in my life. But I have to be a professional. It's like he's overcompensating as he goes after the kid. All right, now here we have our second body count, except look at, I don't know, I mean, those, those guys could be the Three Stooges in there. We don't know who they are. They're not characterized. They're, you know, there are no faces. They're just shadowy types. And now, you know, Rambo, what are we gonna do? He's banging into him, a nice little car chase here. Now he looks to the side and he's gonna see a car at the side of the road. And what he does is, obviously I'm describing the action now, is he rams the car over so it explodes. And we have, what are, how many people are in there? Three, four, let's say there are four. So this will be the maximum body count for this picture. And I mean, since these are faceless whatever, I don't know, I don't know what to make of this in terms of, again, we had the guy hit, you know, falling out by accident when the thing was hit by a rock. And now we have that, and they brought it on themselves. They left him no choice at all. You know, when people carry on about the level of, of violence in this picture, I really wonder which picture they saw, because we just saw pretty much the whole thing. Now I'm gonna pause, because this is one of my favorite moments. Jerry Goldsmith will bring in the Rambo music as he hits the, the car. That's just such a fabulous moment. I gotta tell you a little personal thing here. Uh, really, really personal. My, I, have, I had a 15-year-old son who died from bone cancer back in uh, 1987. And before he died, uh, I put a call into Stallone's office asking i mean you say to yourself well what can i get the kid you know i mean and okay talking to a movie star is no big deal but it's something and so i said you know would Slabby be willing to talk to my son and uh his assistant said well you know i'll call and see what i can do it but you know he gets nervous about this sort of thing because he gets a lot of calls and he can't obviously do them all and beyond that he never knows what to say to these children because they're in such such an ordeal and I said, well, you know, I guarantee that he won't have much trouble in terms of talking because um, because it, it's my kid and, you know, he talks as much as I do, so Sly probably won't be able to get a word in edgewise. And I'm, I'm reminded of this because one afternoon my son, uh, this would be, oh, three months before he died, uh, came home with two kids from school and Matt had, you know, his hair had been shaved off from the chemotherapy and all that. And, and he, the, these kids had never seen a Rambo movie, so they sat down to watch this thing. And this scene was going on when the, when we got this call, and I picked it up, and it was Sly's assistant saying, um, you know, Sly's on the phone. Do you want to put your, your son on if he's home? And I said, boy, I sure will. So I went in, and they're watching this, and I said, Matthew, would you like to talk to Sylvester Stallone? 
And of course, they all thought I was kidding. And I said, no, he's really on the phone. So they went and uh, watched. You know, Matthew was the top dog at school that, that week because the kids were there while he talked to Sylvester for 20 minutes. It was a long conversation, and Sly was very gracious. And I, I had to laugh because Matthew suddenly started asking about script development and what have you and talking about it, talking like his his father's son and, you know, the show business environment that I love. Uh, anyhow, it's a, it's a tender story, I think, and, and it's, just, you know, I think it's a good story about um, Sylvester. This is a police emergency. Please evacuate the streets immediately. found Rambo's body. As a matter of fact, it stole an army truck, blew up a gas station the other side of town. We found Rambo's body, it stole an army truck, got a good little bit. Um, what happens then is he breaks into this, um, this sporting goods store, as you see in the, in the movie, but what he does is he takes dynamite, instead of blowing up the store, he takes dynamite, and he goes all over town like he levels the place. He blows up the courthouse, he blows up the jail, he just absolutely demolishes the place. Whereas here, we have a lot less uh, um, intense destruction of property going on, although God knows it was enough. When Siskel and Ebert reviewed this uh, on their program, I remember them, uh, they sounded almost like Chamber of Commerce boosters. Look at that nice, nice angle there, nice gloomy, again, sense that there's a lot going to happen here. They sounded almost like Chamber of Commerce boosters complaining about all the destruction of private property uh, that was going on in this film. And of course, this was just the start of a trend. Now this is, this almost feels like a straight drama compared to the sorts of things you get in uh, something like, say, The Rock. Now, here we go. Where, where do you people come from? Here's the other side of the Troutman character. He's been very sympathetic toward Rambo, but now he's almost suggesting that he betray Rambo and go after him and kill him himself. Um, this, I think, is one of the most honest moments in the movie. And look at that look. What's he thinking? Is that a benign look, or is he just, he's thinking, you don't have a chance, I have a chance? Um, very complicated moment. You can, there's, a, there's some posters here with Christmas things on them which give us a further sense of the time of year when this was filmed. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I don't know of any city in the United States that has intercoms all through the city hooked up to the police station where all you have to do is pick up a microphone and say, get off the streets, we're going to have trouble but it works all right for, uh, this happened earlier, uh, works all right for, um, for the drama that we're having. This was an old bank, I'm told, that they brought in and, and converted for use as a police station, a kind of urban renewal project that, <laughs> that the film crew was more than happy to help them uh, uh, renovate. So he's going to get up on the roof, and uh, again, the 100-100 theme is at work here. Nice Panavision, nice widescreen shot of the town. Sense of the desolation at work. I think it's worth pointing out, because uh, I don't know if I'll have time, is there's so much to talk about as this picture runs down. I was talking about the body count, and I said, that's it, and you'll say, well, the policeman gets killed. Well, in fact, he does not. 
although you wonder how he would live, but he's shot, he falls through the skylight, he lands on the floor, and at the very, very end, we see him uh, being uh, carried out in a stretcher. Very, it is clear that he is alive. Uh, and um, I, again, I suspect that that was, I never talked to anybody about it, but I suspect that was done um, just as a way of making him just slightly more uh, sympathetic. After all, if the cop was dead, you know, would it be right to send him off to the to the chain gang that we find him at in the start of Rambo 2, uh, or uh, conversely, if he's still alive, well then, you know, it isn't, we only put, we only put about 50 bullets in him as opposed to killing him. So he's, uh, you know, he's, he has a, our hero has a chance for redemption. And here we are, he's going to break in and, uh, and, and, and get with the dynamite. Now, this is another iconic moment coming up. Here we go. Bang. They just loved this when they were doing this in the, in the trailers and particularly in the television ad. Bang, 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 and he kicks it open and he comes in. And, you know, you have to realize, I use this word a lot, uh, icon. Uh, this, this man is one, uh, uh, the, the, just the figure uh, the, the silhouette, even if you didn't know it was Stallone, this has, you know, this is impregnated almost on not just the United States psyche, but around the world. This is one of the most popular characters. Um, it's only happened four times in the 20th century that a character from prose fiction was turned into a film, many films, whatever, and that that character became a part of an international psyche. It's a kind of almost a power game, one of the four. Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, James Bond, and Rambo. Now, if you want to include cartoons, which I am not, you would probably have to include Superman and Batman, but that's a different kind of deal. And if we're talking about prose fiction, it's only happened four times. There was a an acquaintance of mine went to Indonesia and went into the darkest part of the jungles, like where, as they say on Star Trek, where no person has trod before, and walked into a clearing and somebody, and like, this is almost hard for me to believe, but it's true. I saw the, the photograph. Nailed to a tree was a sign that said Rambo. Now, how on earth that sign got there, you know, hundreds of miles from, like, you know, really the outposts of, of civilization. Um, and uh, part of it, part of the, because obviously there's not a lot of, here we get some destruction of that private property that Siskel and Ebert were worried about. Um, the, the, because this is not a verbal film, it is the images that are um, speaking to us, and I, I'll use the word one last time, the iconic, almost mystical, iconic way in which Rambo is presented, like when he stumbled, when he charged through that door, has a lot to do with his, with the power that he exerted upon us. There were two endings filmed for this movie. Um, in my novel, Rambo dies. Teasel dies, and Troutman is the survivor. The way the sequence works is 
Teasel is hit by um, Rambo and is dying on the street. And Troutman says, enough of this, I'm going after him. And he tracks Rambo down and he blows his head off with a shotgun. The man who created Rambo destroyed him. Uncle Sam destroyed him. Um, for a time, that ending was in some of the scripts and it was left out. Then it was put back in. And they filmed an ending in which, which is somewhat different. I have not seen the footage, but I am told that it involves Troutman, Richard Crenna, holding a weapon on Rambo and Rambo coming up and grabbing the weapon and uh, killing himself. That version was shown to audiences who had up until the ending given it, this movie uh, I, I'm talking about test audiences. Given this movie, like top top ratings, it went through the roof the way it was tested in uh, in test screenings. But to a person, almost everybody said, "Wait a minute, you can't kill off a guy that we cheered for for 95 minutes." <laughs> Rambo, don't do it in our house. That's sometimes what we say to my wife and I say to each other when there's some screwy thing we're involved in, and it's really dumb. And you know, Rambo, don't do it. <laughs> Anyhow, they said, we can't cheer for this guy for 95 minutes and then get him get killed. I mean, you can't kill Rocky. So they thought about this, uh, Andy and Mario, and they regrouped the production. They went back up to British Columbia, and they filmed a new ending in which we see Rambo and Troutman walk out of the building and walk down the street with all the police watching them. And they went ahead, of course, and showed this to audiences, and now it really did te test uh, through the roof. Uh, some people, knowing about this extra uh, ending that was never used, have said that the ending was substituted cynically because uh, Andy and Mario simply wanted the chance to have a sequel. Uh, and I am reliably informed in all the conversations I ever had with these uh, gentlemen, I, and I asked them, and they said, no, honestly, we just wanted to have an ending that worked best for the picture. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of... This is not in the book, but it's a wonderful way to end the film. And I think he's doing a good job on this, too. What are they yelling about? It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. It's all in the past now. For you! For me, civilian life is nothing. In the field, we had a code of honor. You watch my back, I watch yours. Back here, there's nothing. Some people thought that Sly, because of this speech, should have been nominated for an Oscar. I could drive a tank. I was in charge of million-dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even... Oh, over there, I could handle million-dollar equipment. Over here, I can't even get a job parking cars. This really spoke to a lot of veterans. I remember after this movie came out, many wives of veterans whom I ran into at book signings and what have you came up to me and said, you know, I want to thank you for this character because the, at least the film saved my marriage. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, you know, he came back from Nam and, and he never talked and... Listen to this. Who are my friends? Because back here there's nothing. Remember Dan Forrest? There are a lot of people with these kind of nightmares, at least back in 82 and certainly before that. 
And the idea was that after seeing this movie, a lot of the guys had been keeping on a ton of bad memories and bad stuff inside them, went, went home and apparently they were crying. And the wife said, what's going on? Of course, they were startled to see their husbands. I mean, I have no problem with men crying, but they had never seen these men express any emotion. And they said, shine, please, shine. I said, no, and he kept asking, yeah. And Joey said, yeah. Shine. And I went to get a couple of beers, and the, the box is wired, and he opened up the box. Watch what he does. He blew his body all over the place. And he's laying there, and he's fucking screaming his pieces of them all over me. It's like the bandoliers become the guts hanging on him. Look at that. Friend, it's all over me. He's got blood and everything. I know Sly doesn't always get much attention as an actor, but I think this is a tour de force, what he's doing here. And people say, well, he isn't speaking clearly. He's not supposed to. The idea was he's supposed to be stuttering, that the emotions and the words are flying out of him faster than he can express them. Anyhow, as I said, these, these people had told me that, that the husbands had opened up and they were talking about some of the stuff they'd been through and that uh, it helped them reach some kind of stasis. It's hard now to understand the impact that this picture had when it came out. It was an ex just an extraordinary impact. And then, of course, when the second movie came out, um, the character became bigger than anybody had imagined. I remember on the set of, would it have been Rocky Three? I can't remember, I was talking to, to Sly about this. I'd never met him, and I was allowed to come over amidst the shooting, and we chatted for a bit. And, and he said to me, I cannot believe this is happening. And because and, we both, we both fell apart from the phenomenon. We stood back. It, I mean, in my own case, you know, I'm watching, say, a football game, and somebody says, here he comes tearing down the field like Rambo, and it takes me about 10 seconds delayed reaction before I say, Rambo, hey, that's my guy. I created him. That's, you know, my wife and the Rambo apples that far back. And uh, for me now uh, to look at this, it's like I sometimes call myself Rambo's father because he, the character grew out of the novel as one kind of person. In this movie, he's one kind of character. In the second movie, he's a different, more exaggerated character. And, and the whole process has been an organic one uh, to the point where sometimes I watch it as sort of an event that I was associated with. Here he is, you can see he's still alive there. That the thing has passed all of us by. And Sly said the same thing, that, you know, watching this, that it's, it's almost like you know you're a part of it and yet you're, you're, you're past it from, uh, aside from it. And here we have a, it's a long road Very effective ending, I think. I'm, I'm, I don't think I would have liked to see him die. And uh, Jerry Goldsmith uh, wrote some music for this, and uh, same theme again, but now it's presented in a different way. And if you look at some of the credits here, uh, look at all the very well-known stuntman Richard Farnsworth, and. Uh, a little farther on, we get to the Rat Wrangler thing. At any rate, it's been a pleasure uh, reminiscing with you on this picture. Uh, it certainly takes me back a long ways. As I said, I'm remembering when I first saw it, and 
I'm remembering when my book came out in 72, and I'm remembering when I first got the idea back in 1968. It's been more than a quarter of a century. It's been quite a ride. Thank you. It's a long road and it's hard as hell. Tell me what do you do to survive when they draw first blood? That's just the start of It's a long